So, good evening to you all. You're very welcome. Uh, my name is Shane Mulhall, and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and Caring for Yourself. And the subtitle is, If You Don't, Who Will? And in case you've missed the answer, the answer is nobody. Now, what is it that needs caring for? There is the human instrument, which is made up of body, mind and heart. And like all instruments, it needs caring for. A car is an instrument, and even if it is designed perfectly, even if it is made perfectly, because of use, it needs caring for. Body, mind and heart are used, and thus also need caring for. Then there is our true self, the spirit or essence of man known in philosophy as the self. This is consciousness and is said by scripture and the wise to be pure, perfect and complete, eternal, limitless, ever blissful, free, unaffected, not subject to birth, growth, decay and death, independent, and the source of all wisdom and love. As this is its nature, and it can never be separated from its nature, it needs no caring for. In truth, we do not, nor need not, care for ourselves. So this talk is not about caring for ourselves, but about caring for our human instrument, that is, the body, mind and heart. Now, this pure consciousness, which we are, expresses itself as bliss or energy in the creation. It is the vitality in the body, the intelligence in the mind, and love or happiness in the heart. This energy is the light of the world. And Jesus said, you are the light of the world. And it was this pure consciousness that he was referring to. Now, if we are this perfect self, why should we bother caring for the human instrument then? Well, if not cared for, it is neglected. And neglected, it is ultimately abused. Abused, it does not function to its full potential. And not functioning to its full potential, it does not reflect the pure nature of the self. The pure consciousness does not express itself fully in body, mind and heart as vitality, intelligence and love or happiness. Instead, the human instrument of body, mind and heart suffers tiredness and disease in the body, doubt and ignorance in the mind, and misery and greed in the heart. And instead of lighting up the world, we at best are a walking shadow on the earth. So how may we care properly for our human instrument? And we're going to look at this primarily from the point of view of energy. That is ensuring that the energy of the pure self is available fully to our bodies, minds and hearts. And with this, we will truly care for ourselves 
at all levels of human existence. So let us look at energy. Firstly, our problem is not that we don't have enough energy, but that we squander it. Secondly, we do not know how to conserve it, that is, spend it efficiently. Thirdly, having used it or squandered it, we do not know how to replenish it. And fourthly, we don't value it enough because we do not appreciate its importance to us. So ordinarily, we are very concerned with any waste of our material possessions. But with energy, we are happy to waste it in large amounts as if it made no difference to us. This energy is our human capital. It is our human wealth, the real wealth of a human being. And the natural state is to live large lives and still have considerable quantities of energy left over. If we find ourselves tired by living what are in truth quite small lives in relation to our full potential and capacity, Something has seriously gone wrong somewhere. So why is energy so important to us? Well, firstly, without energy we will not be able to fulfil the ultimate purpose of human existence. Secondly, our levels of energy determine both the size of our lives and also our enjoyment of them. Now, as regards the size of our life, we may recognise that having just come home from work, sometimes we've no energy at all. So if the light goes in the, you know, in the family room, we don't even have the energy to go and get a new light bulb. We think, well, sure, it's romantic to watch the television in the dark. Anyway, I do it at the weekend when I have a lot more time. However, when we have lots of energy... We will go 20 miles out of our way to help a total stranger. Now, as regards our enjoyment of life, when we are without energy, we cannot be bothered to do that which ordinarily delights us. Or if we do do it, it fails to yield any real pleasure or satisfaction. When we are tired, then doing the things that we really love still do not yield any joy. We just don't get anything out of them. So it's like not being able to enjoy really excellent food when we're ill. Now, without abundance of energy, we live small lives which produce very little satisfaction. Thus, we are not much use to anybody, not even ourselves. Now, we all naturally have the energy for a large and satisfying life if we don't waste our energy and if we learn how to replenish it. With abundance of energy, we have the necessary supply of energy to respond easily and well within our capacity to all the challenging events that befall us and not just merely survive. So the example is that albeit we ordinarily drive our car, let's say at 80 kilometres per hour, we do have 
150 kilometer per hour capacity available to us to safely deal with emergencies. You know that situation where you, in error, decide that you're going to overtake the juggernaut? And you begin to proceed in the outside lane, and you seem to only made it past the rear axle of this juggernaut. And at this stage, the foot is to the bottom, and as fast as you go, the juggernaut seems to be going equally fast. And now there's another juggernaut coming down towards you. And you have that horrible feeling of helplessness. Well, we don't want that feeling of helplessness when adversity visits us. We want to feel that we have the capacity to get past the event. So we need to have extra energy to meet adversity and the challenges which arise from time to time or else life will defeat us. So we all know some people who have not gotten over a death in the family or a broken relationship or the loss of a job or promotion because they had no reserves of energy to face these events or transcend them. So, how do we normally feel at the end of a day? If we were asked to read a few pages of one of Plato's dialogues, say at nine in the evening, how many of us would be asleep in ten minutes? Some of you are nearly falling asleep already, and I haven't even spoken for ten minutes. <laughs> and it obviously doesn't reflect on me. Now, towards the end of our ordinary day, it would be nice to have, still, at least half a tankful, rather than to be running on empty. With abundance of energy, the experience of life is one of security, living well, and at the same time, comfortably within our means, or capacity. And we're then like the rich man, who always has money in his pocket, and does not have to live frugally in fear of his money running out. If all our energy goes into earning a living and managing the day-to-day -day activities, we will not have a sufficient supply to make our lives large and truly satisfying. And it would be a shame that having put so much energy into caring for the mundane things of life, such as career, marriage and family, we did not have the energy to attend to the main reason of human existence. Why we are here in the first place. And this story has been told before, but Newton, Isaac Newton, on his deathbed, this is how he summed up his life, which by ordinary standards would have been considered to be a great life. But this is how he saw it. I do not know what I may appear to the world, but to myself I seem to be only like a boy, playing on the seashore and diverting myself and now and then finding a smoother pebble or prettier shell than ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. 
without attending to the main purpose of human existence, life is ultimately frustrating and unfulfilling for us. So what is the main purpose of human existence? The worldly view is to live a full life. That is a long life and full of activities and achievements. The philosophic view is to discover the answer to such questions as who or what am I? What is the purpose of my life? Why did I come into this world? And the religious view is to find our way back to God. Staying with philosophy, the important thing to note is this, that a life guided by wisdom results in both the conservation and generation of energy. As said before, this facilitates the discovery of the truth about ourselves and also ensures a constant and abundant supply of energy. So we can live fully, happily and wisely. And with abundance of energy we are in excellent condition. Physically we are full of health and vitality. Mentally we enjoy clarity, brightness, intelligence and freedom from doubt. Emotionally we're full of willingness, welcoming the events of life. We have generosity and we're free from anger, fear, worry, greed, etc., and there's enthusiasm for our lives. And we leap out of bed in the morning to fulfill our destiny. So, how enthusiastic are you about your life? Do you leap out of bed in the morning to fulfill your destiny? Or are you like me? On the other hand, a life governed by ignorance results in us wasting our energy so that eventually we are depleted of it, leaving us in a very poor state. So physically, there will be excess or deficiency. So we will work, eat, drink and sleep too much or too little. Mentally, there will be dullness of mind or too much thinking. The mind just won't stop thinking. And we will entertain doubts where none are justified. And there will be procrastination, indecisiveness and stupidity. And emotionally, we will suffer from lethargy. Frequently, there will be negative emotions in our hearts and also a sense of lack of fulfilment. And there will be resistance to our lives. You know what it's like going back to work after your summer holidays, you don't say to yourself, well, thank God they're over with, now I can get back to my real life. You sort of wish there'd be a sort of an airline strike and you'd have to stay in Corfu for another fortnight. Or getting up on Mondays to join your life. And you wish a minor illness on yourself that will disappear magically about five o'clock next Friday. We don't really want to get back to our lives. So this resistance is to participating fully and willingly in our lives. They're just so lacking in satisfaction. 
Now, we probably don't recognize any of this in our lives, but we may have a friend who would. (laughs) There are two main reasons for conserving and replenishing energy. Firstly, we are better able to deal with all of life, success and failure, the ordinary and the exceptional, the favourable and the calamitous. We are like the large ship which can traverse the ocean whether it is calm or stormy. And secondly, we have the energy needed to realize the real purpose of human existence, to know who we are in truth. And through these two, we truly care for ourselves. So the next question for us to face is, where does energy come from? Now, it's obvious that we get energy from food. But why do we get energy from sleep? Where does it come from? I mean, if you parked your car in the driveway at night at 11 o'clock and there were 10 gallons of petrol in the tank and you came down the next morning at, say, 8 o'clock, you wouldn't expect to find 15 gallons of petrol in the tank. You wouldn't think just by parking your car there would be an increase in the fuel. So how is it that when you park your body in a bed there's an increase in energy? Where does that energy actually come from? How is it that we can feel lethargic and yet after a brisk walk feel full of energy? Surely the activity of walking consumes energy rather than provides it. Why are we energised after an excellent conversation with a good friend? So where is this energy coming from? Now one thing that both science and religion agree on is that the universe is full of energy. If we understand, and remember the next point we will have taken with us the key point to this talk. So you can sleep for the rest of the talk now if you stay awake for the next two minutes. And it's very, very important and it's very simple, but mainly not really known or observed by the vast majority of mankind. And it's this. If we connect with the universe, we are replenished by the universe free of charge. At night in deep sleep, we drop our separate existence and merge in the universe. And becoming one with the universe, the universe replenishes us from its limitless resources. This is why we gain energy from sleeping in a bed at night. Literally, the universe replenishes our resources while we lie asleep. Now, if we separate from the universe, then we can only rely on our own individual reserves of energy. And the example is of a jar. The river is flowing all the time, full of water. When you submerge the jar into the river, the river fills the jar. The jar can then be removed from the river and the water be used 
outside the river. When we merge in the universe, we are filled by the universe. We then use the energy in our daily affairs. And when it is used up, we can merge back in the universe and fill up again. Now, this energy system is available to all of us without exception. So, there's never any reason to be tired. Never. You can always replenish your energy immediately. The ordinary man uses up his energy every day, but only knows how to fully replenish his physical energy. Resting at the physical level, by sleeping at night, he only replenishes his subtle energy a little. And by subtle energy, I mean your mental and emotional energy. So, to give you a sense of this, you cannot increase your mental and emotional energy by sleeping. So, you'll find that no matter how many hours you sleep, you never wake up wiser. It's not possible. You never wake up with more love in your heart than when you went to bed. Because it's not possible to increase mental and emotional energy by sleeping at night. And replenishing this subtle energy only a little over the years, the person becomes progressively poorer in this subtle energy. And as a result, does not get the best out of his or her life. His mental powers and emotional capacity diminish with the years. Now, practical philosophy allows us to replenish our energy at all levels in our lives so that we never become poor in energy. Never, never, never. Now, we separate from the universe when our hearts become small and form a hard core around them, or when the mind drifts into the past and the future. And conversely, we connect with the universe when the mind is still and in the present moment, and when our hearts open out to the world around us. So, stillness in the mind and love in the heart fills us with energy, while agitation in the mind and petty feelings in the heart exhaust us. They cut us off from the universal supplies which would replenish us on a moment-to-moment -moment basis so that we would never be without energy. So, what then is energy? And as said before, energy is a person's capital and each of us is provided with a certain measure a certain amount of this capital. We come into the world with it and it is absolutely sufficient for each of us to have a glorious life. But we have a choice. We can either squander our capital or we can conserve and multiply it. Now the wise, according to the Shankaracharya, the man whom the school of philosophy put all its questions to, the wise live off interest alone. So, I want you to imagine that on a financial basis. Would you like that? 
living off interest alone. So every morning you wake up and you decide, I think I'll buy this and I think I'll buy that. And you get all sorts of goodies which yield all sorts of pleasures. And no matter how much you spend to have a great and big life, at the end of the day you've got all your capital left. Wouldn't that be just fantastic financially? So this is what it's like for the wise. All that they come into the world with and more, they have at the end of their lives. Despite the fullest of lives, they're not depleted in any way. So they die, let's say in their 80s, absolutely young in themselves. It is only necessary to become old in body. Becoming old in mind and heart is voluntary. In ignorance, we are consuming our capital and so end up old in body, mind and heart and some of us at a very young age. So would you like to see whether you've been consuming your capital? Would you? No, you wouldn't. Because the answer is horrendous. But anyway, since this yields great pleasure to me, we're going to have a look at this. We're going to see whether we're actually poorer now than when we were born. Whether life has been a movement from immense riches to increasing poverty. So I want you to imagine or remember yourself as a young child, perhaps around three or four, around that age. As compared to when we were this young child, do we now have less unconditional love in our hearts? Do we have less courage? Do we have less determination to master everything that comes our way? Do we have less interest in everything? Do we have less joy in learning? Do we have less faith in others? Less devotion to those we love? Do we have less hope for the future? Less belief in ourselves? in our own innate lovability and our own innate capability. Well, judging by the fact that you've all been studying the carpet for the last two minutes, I'm going to assume how you've answered those questions. And on that basis, we have been consuming our capital. We have grown old instead of growing large. Now, if you didn't get a clear answer, let's say, from those questions, there's another way of looking at it. And that is to consider the brightness of our eyes. So the brightness in our eyes is a reflection of how much capital we have left. So when death ultimately comes, your eyes go totally dull. Some of us have very dull eyes for about 50 years prior to death. <laughs> So this is what we have to do. If we were to compare a photograph of ourselves now with a photograph of when we were 
a young child, which of the photographs would have the brighter eyes? When I was a young child, on many, many occasions, people came to me and said, you have such beautiful eyes. It is 55 years since anybody ever said that to me. <laughs> I, <laughs> so, so if our eyes are duller now, we have been consuming our capital. The eyes are the windows to our souls and they do not lie. Now, if we spend our capital, then life unfolds as follows. There's the brightness of the baby, there's the vitality and enthusiasm of youth and the dullness of old age. And it doesn't have to turn out like this. And it doesn't turn out like this if we develop a facility which is available to each and every one of us. And that is discrimination. Because discrimination determines how we use our energy. So what is discrimination in the philosophical sense? Discrimination is our ability to see things as they really are and then to choose the better to live by. Without discrimination, the result will be in a range from squandering our life to not making the best use of it. So if, if you were to die in the next 30 seconds, could you say that you've made the best use of your life? And if no, then there's a need for more discrimination in our lives. Our level of discrimination determines what we spend our capital on. And in the context of this talk, discrimination is choosing that which provides us with energy rather than that which drains us of energy. So discrimination is the key to fullness of energy. So let's take a look at how we ordinarily waste energy at the three levels of physical, mental and emotional. So physical waste. Measure is health for the body and with health, there is fullness of energy. Lack of measure results in loss of energy. Now, everything in measure, because too much of anything, is not good for you. And this is a most important point. Not even too much of a good thing is good for you. And the proof of the need for measure is that despite the fact that we eat and sleep, in order to gain energy, those who eat the most and sleep the most have the least energy. This is the law of diminishing returns. At a physical level, if something yields you pleasure, once you go beyond measure, it then becomes dull. And from dull, it moves to painful. And this is a very important point. If you find anything in your life dull, it is not because the thing itself is dull, but because you have the wrong measure of it. There is no such thing as a dull person or a dull thing. Everything in this measure is absolutely interesting. But to give you some examples of it, 
And so this is a makey-up story, but if we go back 35 years to when myself and my wife got married, and at this stage she was completely and totally besotted by my earthly presence, and with sort of a, a dreamy look in my eyes on the honeymoon, I let her be known to her that I really like strawberries. So after we come back together on our honeymoon, because it was a successful honeymoon, that's why we came back together, and we are now on our way home from the airport, she insists that we stop at a little Tesco shop and get some strawberries. So for the next fortnight, there are now there's strawberries for breakfast. There's a couple with my coffee in the morning at 11. There's a few at lunchtime. There's some with the crackers and cheese at 4 o'clock. There's a few at 6 o'clock. And there's even one on the pillow late at night. <laughs> because she used to be in the hospitality business. Now, whatever joy strawberries used to bring me, after a fortnight, all that joy is gone. I can't bear strawberries anymore. And that's what happens. Now, if I take another example, I love rugby, and I love to watch rugby. And again, if I go back 35 years, there was a stage when my wife... Well, I, I used to love my wife watching rugby with me. And she also enjoyed it. But the unfortunate thing is my wife doesn't know how to watch rugby, which is very, very precise how you watch rugby. So one of the first rules is you do not lean against the person who's also watching rugby. Because you need physical space to really watch rugby. Secondly, you do not hold their hand. Because they need both hands for various gestures during the game of rugby. Anyway, my wife was completely innocent of these very fundamental rules of watching rugby with her husband. So she used to lean against me. And she would hold my hand. And again, because there was this complete besottedness there, she might stroke my hand. Right? So the first stroke, you know what that first stroke is like on your hand? That intense quiver of pleasure as it passes down your body and your eyes lose focus. You have no idea how many tries I have missed. Right? <laughs> And this was in the days prior to Sky recording boxes, so I never got to see them. But if she continued to stroke my hand, after five minutes, I want to bite her fingers off. <laughs> because now it is just painful and irritating. Do you recognize that? Now... This is again a very important point. Just as excess results in tiredness, idleness also produces exactly the same tiredness. Isn't that amazing? You become tired from working too much and you become tired from working too little. Incredible. People often find themselves very tired on Sunday afternoons when they do very little. Now secondly, there's mental waste of energy. And the primary way we waste this is through inner speech. This is talking to ourselves, silently to ourselves. Using the ventriloquist dummy in our head, rehearsing the future, reliving past conversations. 
saying all of the things we couldn't think of at the time. You know the way you never lose an argument in retrospect. You know that? You can think of all the things you should have said. Secondly, as regards mental waste of energy, there's incessant thinking, particularly about all one has to do, but doing very little of it. Effectively avoiding doing what needs to be done by spending our time trying to decide which we should do first, or that there's too much to do, so there's no point in really starting any of it. Thirdly, there's attending to other people's business, how they're doing it, how they should be doing it, how I would do it. And all of this is based on the belief that I know better than the person who is doing the job. If everybody minded their own business, there would be considerable saving of energy. Each life is so full to try and do another person's business, we have to neglect our own. And the result is chaos and fatigue. And fourthly, there's daydreaming and fantasizing. So, if I won the lotto. Now, you're not going to believe this. I think you won't believe this. And it's a tragedy if you don't believe it. But this is what the Shankaracharya said. He said, in relation to a single daydream. Now, a daydream can sometimes take only 15 seconds. Is that okay? But the amount of energy that is consumed by a single daydream is equivalent to the energy needed for eight hours' work. Okay? I knew you wouldn't believe me. But that's the truth of the matter. To give you a sense of, you might think, well, how could that be? How could a 15-second daydream consume so much energy? This is not a proof, but it's an indication of how it might be true. If I asked you to make something out of nothing, so if I asked you to make a wooden table with no wood, you've got no wood allocated to you, so you have to make it out of nothing, and you really have a go at it, you'll be exhausted. Does that make sense? You'll be absolutely exhausted trying to make this table out of nothing. Well, a daydream is something you make out of nothing. It's got nothing in it. And if you do that, you consume vast quantities of energy. Thirdly, there's emotional waste of energy. Firstly, there's dwelling on negativity, such as worry and anger. And then there's taking offence. And then we go on, we nurse that offence, so as to make sure it doesn't die on us. Which is absolute insanity. It's like keeping Hitler alive so that we can continue with the war. Why would you keep an offence alive in your heart? But some of us can keep an offence alive for 30 years. Then there is criticising oneself and others. And most of this is based on expectations as to how people should behave. Now, I have such an arrogant view of myself that I think that when I cast my vote, I cast it intelligently and therefore correctly. I'm voting for the right people on the right basis. On many occasions, my wife has voted differently to me. 
we can't discuss it anymore. Because I think she's voting incorrectly. In fact, I think some of her casting of votes is so bad that they should take the vote away from her. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, I won't tell you what she thinks should be done to me because it's impolite. When she tells me why she's voting for somebody and I disagree with it, it just gets to me. And this energy pours out of me. So we don't do it anymore. Thirdly, there's the domination of our desires. With desire inevitably comes force. We try to force the events of life. And this force is unnecessary. And unnecessary force means waste of energy. With desire, everything has to go according to our plans. But our plans never include getting punctures. I have made millions of plans in my life and I've never made one that included getting a puncture. So you know when you do get a puncture, you know that incredible loss of energy, the resistance and the anger, and you say to yourself, why do I always get punctures? Even though you haven't got one for ten years. If you included in your plan getting a puncture every time you travelled, Think of how happy you would be at the end of 99.99% of journeys. Fourthly, there's chasing after pleasure. It's like cramming everything into a holiday. It's as if we are permanently at Disneyland and have to see everything. We want to taste everything on the menu of life. Otherwise, we might just miss out on something. And fifthly, the most exhausting thing in life is insincerity. Not being true to ourselves or others. This is why so much of social life is exhausting. Even if you go to a fantastic party and somebody says to you, let's go to another one tomorrow night. You don't want to. The reason why is because it's so tiring. And the reason why it's so tiring is we ordinarily are trying to make an impression instead of just being ourselves. And trying to impress others is trying to be who we are not. Ultimately, it's an insult to the person in front of us. We are not being honest with them. When others are trying to impress us, we are not impressed. And the more they try to impress us, the less we are impressed by them. And it's exactly the same when we're trying to impress them. So what are the effects of wasting energy? As some people use a lifetime's energy in half a life, thus bringing their lives to an untimely early end. For a lot of us, virtually all our energy is spent on earning a living, maintaining relationships with family and a few friends, enjoying a little recreation, and there's none left over to fulfill the true purpose of human life. And this is truly a great tragedy because it was not the reason for which we came into this world. Job, family and recreation are not enough to fulfil man. We must learn to live great and large lives while at the same time having full tanks and much in reserve. We cannot afford to lose our energy just as a businessman cannot afford losses.
So the need is for measure in the life. The whole creation runs on measure. And measures are the laws of the creator. Now what is the purpose of these laws or measures? And there's only one purpose to all the laws of this creation. And that is to provide bliss. The aim of the creator is bliss for all. And with measure, the goodness of the creation is shared by all. The human instrument of body, mind and heart is of the creation and therefore is subject to measure. A car is an instrument also in this creation. And if not well treated, it may stop in the middle of the journey. Likewise for us, we may not complete the human journey if we ignore the measures of creation. Obey the measures and the outcome is bliss. Ignore them and the outcome inevitably is misery. Measures keep us on the right track. If we obey measure, according to the Shankaracharya, we get an everlasting pension after our retirement which is probably better than the one you've got right now. So what would that be like? Well, this everlasting pension is eternal bliss or union with the Absolute. Now, with discrimination, we learn the measures because we either learn the measures or we are punished, punished by ourselves. The punishment being our own self-inflicted misery. Once we have learned useful measures, we should practice them again and again until they are naturalized in us. If we are pained by a situation, do not do it again. Try another solution. We only have to overeat once in our lives. But think of how many times we do overeat. Now, there are two ways to destroy a thing. Overuse it or underuse it. An engine can either rust or burn out. Thus the measured use of our energy is essential. Abstinence or refusal to act does not conserve energy. It is like an arm tied behind your back, wasting away. So it's use it or lose it, as they say. The use of energy within measure determines the supply. However, sometimes people make the error of reducing their lives to reduce exhaustion. But the reduction of use of energy leads to reduction of supply of energy. And so, the exhaustion remains with us. The idle are permanently tired. So, never, ever, ever try to protect your energy by making your life small. Now, what can we do to assist measure in the life? Ordinarily for us, activities run one into another and energy pours out of the being. The antidote to this is to establish the habit of pausing between activities. At the end of one activity, stop and come to rest for a moment before commencing the next activity. So, just imagine if language was without full stops. 
Imagine how chaotic it would be. And this is what life is like without pausing between activities. This practice of pausing is truly remarkable in reducing the waste of energy. It brings about a simple happiness and makes you fresh for the next work. So just allow the mind to rest for a minute or two. Life is a journey and these pauses are like light-giving lampposts at a distance from one another but sufficient to guide us throughout the whole journey. If we punctuate our day frequently with these short pauses, we will be able to do our work efficiently, with enjoyment, and without destroying ourselves. Secondly, in order to assist us with measure, the thinking mind never likes to stop. It just goes on and on without respite. And this is very energy consuming. And what is necessary is that the thinking mind is under the direction of the intellect. And if this is not done, it will use up all our energy and destroy the life. And a good way in assisting the bringing of the thinking mind under the control of the intellect is that whenever we find ourselves thinking, to ask ourselves the following question. Is there something better that I could be doing now? And whatever the mind answers, do that. Thirdly, when doing any work, attend to it fully with our senses, thinking mind and intellect all together. Most of us do not apply mind or intellect to our activities while the job is being performed. The mind is off somewhere else, running riot. Usually, the mind plays touch and go, checking in every so often just to see how life is progressing. Much of the life is spent daydreaming, often dwelling in experiences of the past. And this happens because the mind has either nothing to do or it simply likes to redo and re-enjoy that which it has already experienced. So as said before, according to the Shankaracharya, the energy consumed in these little daydreams is enormous. And think of how many dreams we have each day. And then we wonder why we're so tired. And this also tells you how destructive idleness is, because when we are idle, we daydream an awful lot. The right way of acting is to fully use the thinking mind and intellect in ordinary activities. And once we achieve this, then we will enjoy a wonderful stillness of mind and conservation of energy. And the fourth factor which can help us to find measure in the life is a simple test for discovering what is true measure. For example, at the physical level, take any type of food and after taking it, if the body is not uncomfortable and if the natural need for the same substance is aroused in proper time, then the quantity used is right. So if it doesn't cause any discomfort, and if after an appropriate time you'd like to try it again, then the quantity is right. Do you know what it's like when you eat out? Let's say you eat out and somebody says, let's do it again tomorrow. 
you don't really want to eat out for a while again. And the reason is because we've eaten too much. This test can be applied to our mental and emotional food as well. That is what our minds and hearts normally feed on. So to find measure, we must watch and discriminate what is useful, where and when. And we have to find this out for ourselves, because no general rule can be prescribed, nor is it necessary. So how do we discover a natural, balanced way of living? As said before, discrimination is the key. Discrimination leads to measure in the life because it reveals the useful from the useless, the efficient from the wasteful, and that which provides energy as against that which consumes energy. Discrimination is about selecting the best and discarding the worst. With discrimination we see everything as it is, and this allows us to enjoy a true relationship with everything. And with true relationship, there cannot be abuse, and thus measure naturally ensues. With discrimination we find a measure which is just right for enjoyable living, and at the same time is also right for development of our being. Now the Shankaracharya described what a man or woman of discrimination is like, and it's worth hearing. He says, those who discriminate, their actions become of a different nature. The way they walk, see, eat and think, or the way they conduct their professional work, takes a different turn from that of common men. Because every action is refined, beautiful and efficient. This results in happiness and peace. Whatever situation is presented before them, howsoever difficult and trying, they would not lose control. They remain peaceful and utilize the best of their energy to do the job. If they succeed, they will not be much elated. And if they fail, they will not feel sorry at all. Failure and success, profit and loss, pleasure and pain, find a general level in them. They are neither too much excited nor too much depressed. And finding a general level of these opposite results, they never waste their energy unnecessarily. So they can face the next situation freshly and with enough energy. It will be seen that they are detached and therefore unperturbed. So we need to learn how to use and strengthen our powers of discrimination. And this is a marvellous thing. You don't have to do anything to discriminate. Discrimination works naturally without us doing anything extra. When the mind is still and free from prejudice and limiting ideas, and when the heart is open and full of love, discrimination simply works by itself. So we need a new diet for our minds and hearts, and that diet is stillness for the mind and openness for the heart. So how do we achieve that? Well, as regards the body, measure is the key. So not too much and not too little. Neither gluttony nor excessive dieting. And this is an important point. The sensual world does not and cannot 
yield full satisfaction. The objects of sense are not there for full satisfaction. They're there to keep life going, but are not the goal of your life. So do not seek to fulfill yourself in them. Because man is more than his senses, the senses cannot fully satisfy. Therefore stop wanting just a bit more. Do not seek that final satisfaction in the senses because it's impossible. And a practical example is do not eat until you're full. And if you sleep in bed seeking that final piece of rest, you generally find that you're more tired when you do get up than if you'd gotten up earlier. The other factor is that regularity or consistency is essential. Now, modern life really makes the next point very, very, very difficult, but it's essential. A day is the unit of your life. Not a week, not a month, not a season, not a year. So you don't try and find a balanced or measured week, or a balanced or measured month, or a balanced or measured year. You need to find a measured day. The simple proof of this is, if you decide, I'm not going to eat between Monday and Friday, and then I'm just going to gorge myself on Saturday and Sunday, you will not have a healthy body. If you decide, I won't sleep between Monday and Friday, and I'll sleep all day Saturday and Sunday, you won't be rested. What you have to do is to discover the measure for every day. It's the right amount of work, Rest, play, eating, drinking for each day. Now normally we work too hard during the week and we either rest or play too much during the weekend. And we think we've got it balanced. Or we work too hard during the year and then we take long holidays. It won't work. If you don't find the measure of the day, you won't find it of the week, nor of the month, nor of the year, and you won't find measure in your life. What can we do as regards the mind? Well, attention is the all-important factor, and it needs to be single and not divided. Despite the fact that it needs to be like this, if you just consider how much of the time your mind is trying to attend to more than one thing. So when you're driving, when you're doing mundane activities, the mind is off planning the next activity. So practice doing one thing at a time and give it your full attention. Split attention is a continuous drain of energy and it is always accompanied by dissatisfaction. Even if you are doing two very interesting things at the same time, it will be dissatisfying. This is why one husband is more satisfying than two boyfriends. If he's a good husband. Work or anything only truly satisfies when it is fully attended to. So, I want you just to consider for a moment something that you really love to do. Really, really love to do. It doesn't make a difference whether it's gardening or sport or whatever. Now, the satisfaction that arises, arises because of one-pointed attention. Not because of what we're actually attending to. It doesn't make any difference whether it is rugby or looking at your moth collection. 
it makes no difference at all. All that's important for full satisfaction to arise is that there's single-pointed attention. The person who gives single-pointed attention to his moth collection gets as much satisfaction as another person does watching, you know, the World Cup rugby final. There's no waste of energy with single-pointed attention. So, attend to the person in front of you or the work you're doing now. Live in the present, connect with the senses, stop daydreaming and stop excessive planning. The Shankaracharya says, the mind needs rest and efficient people who work hard often find it difficult to rest. People can undertake remarkable amounts of work and yet cannot manage to sit quiet for ten minutes. And these people spend a lot more than they earn in terms of energy and then become bankrupt in the end. There are some people who are so greedy for the things of the world that they have no mercy for their own lives. In pursuit of pleasure, money or other things, they go to any length and ultimately destroy themselves. Hard work needs deep rest and the greatest single way to bring about this for the mind is meditation. It provides the deepest of rest and extra real energy. So what about the heart? What can we do there? Well, the first thing is to drop negative emotions by using reason. So you ask questions like, who is it that is benefiting from this negative emotion? So say you're as miserable as be damned, you can ask yourself, who is benefiting right now from the fact that I am miserable? You'll find there never is anybody benefiting from it. Nobody benefits from your anger, your greed, your jealousy, your irritation, your misery, your sadness, whatever. And if nobody is benefiting from something, you should simply drop it. Or you can ask yourself, can I change the way I feel about this? And the answer is always yes. You can always change the way you feel about something. So if you feel about something in a way that is causing you misery, just change the way you feel about it. Then it will stop causing you misery. And enlarge your world by delimiting your love. Give all of yourself to all. Restraint of love by the exclusion of some or most people is exhausting. Love energizes. So love more, or in fact love all. This enlarges the life, and an enlarged life is satisfying. We have endless energy when working for the good of something greater than ourselves. This is actually the secret of abundance of energy. So when a mother decides that she will care for her child, she gets an abundance of energy to care for that child. As soon as we start working for our selfish little self, the energy is gone. Say you invite some people to your house and you really love them and you want to entertain them and feed them well. You suddenly find that there's an abundance of energy. You can clean the crockery, polish the cutlery, you can turn the little paper napkins into little ducks on their plates and it's not too much trouble at all. You actually delight in expending the energy on their behalf. Now, do you know what it's like when you cook for yourself? You think, well, sure, there's no point in using a side plate. 
I'll only have to wash it up afterwards. And my wife's not here, so I'll drink from the carton. Right? That'll, that, that'll save me doing a glass. Uh, maybe, maybe you can cut a steak with a fork if you press it in hard enough. That'll save the knife. Do you ever see how pathetic your little tray is? <laughs> Not a napkin in the shape of duck in sight at all. So the great visionaries always seem to have an abundance of energy. And the reason for this is that the truly greats work for all. I don't know whether you know the anecdotal story told about Mother Teresa, who was a tireless worker and obviously was a great visionary. But when she was well into her 80s and they were trying to get her to slow down, she refused to slow down and gave them the following answer. She says, I have all eternity to rest. Isn't that excellent? So this shifting of the focus from me to all allows energy to flow because vision always lends energy. And if you seem to be frequently devoid of energy, ask yourself, what vision do you have for your life? What vision are you serving now? Again, the greatest single way to purify the heart so that it may expand fully is to meditate. Meditation energizes us beyond our wildest dreams. So this is the second point from the Shankaracharya that 99% of us will not accept as true. But what he says that in proper meditation, that is half an hour, twice a day, if we do this, we should get enough energy to keep going for 20 or 30 hours. Now, the fact is we normally are only awake for 16 or 17 hours. So, let's say you're awake for 17 hours, you meditate properly, and you get 30 hours of energy. So, at the end of the day, you're plus 13 hours. At the end of uh, two days, you're plus 26. At the end of a week, you're 91 hours. By the time you're 50, you're like a little chicken lepping around the place, so full of energy. If we do meditate and are tired at the end of the day, we should examine our meditation. Why is it not yielding us 30 hours of energy? Meditation fully compensates us for the energy which is being used in our daily activities, and there's even more left over for subsequent utilization. It both recoups and enlarges our energy, and it takes us to the direct experience of the truth about ourselves. So it makes possible both a full life and one based on truth. With the extra fine energy that meditation provides, we will not overexert our minds and hearts. And being recharged, our minds and hearts will be fresh to receive pure impressions. Thus life will never go stale for us. We will know how to use our energy and not misuse it. Our efficiency, precision and reasoning will improve dramatically. And we will carry out our ordinary affairs beautifully, lovingly, peacefully. And we will evolve consciously as human beings because fine energy means growth of being. Now, if we find what has been suggested so far is beyond us, and it really isn't beyond us, but if we think it is beyond us, 
There are three simple things that each of us can do and there's no excuse for not doing them. And if you do them, it will greatly change the levels of energy available to you. So to care for your body, each day take a 15 minute walk. Now not one three and a half hour walk on a Sunday, but one every day for 15 minutes. And for the first five minutes of that walk, let your attention primarily be with a sense of sight. So you, you see the colours and forms that appear before you. For the next five minutes, let the attention primarily be with the sense of touch. So touch the air on the face and hands, or the, feel the feet touching the ground. And for the final five minutes, hear everything that is in your range. Just hear all the sounds. Now, this is a 15-minute conscious walk. If you do it, you will be replenished with large levels of energy at the end of that walk. To care for your mind, each day, again for 15 minutes, read great literature. So, read scriptures, the words of the wise, or inspirational lives. If you do this, after each 15 minutes, it would be like your mind had an excellent meal. And thirdly, to care for your heart, remember that whatever you put your heart into will never tire you. You're never tired by doing what you love to do. So prepare a list of the ten things you most love to do, but which you do not do for whatever reason and reintroduce them into your life. Now, by doing the things you love to do, you get back the passion into your life. And with the passion back, energy will be in abundance again, and you will once more leap out of your beds to fulfil your destinies. In conclusion, conservation and generation of energy allows for a happier and more fulfilled life. But more importantly, it creates the conditions which make possible the real work of your life, which is the discovery of the truth about yourself, the realisation of your full potential. With energy, discrimination and measure, we are in perfect shape. The Shankaracharya says, self-realisation is to keep one's body, mind and heart machine in perfect order and just allow oneself to be attuned to the universal consciousness so that the forces from the Creator can pass right through the creation properly. By taking care of ourselves and doing our duty, we keep ourselves attuned to the universal consciousness so that it may work through us. This is the real work for the human being to keep oneself ready for the job and allow the job to be done by really doing nothing. So as of now, right now, start really caring for yourself so that you may realise who you truly are. And then you will be in a position to really care for others and the whole creation. And that's the end of the talk. So thank you.
So, what questions would you like to ask? Hi, Shane. In terms of sleep, and if you wake up not feeling refreshed, it's indicative that you haven't repaired. Now, obviously, you're sleeping, so you're, the idea is that you're, you connect with the universe in your deep sleep. Yes. Now, when you wake up and you're not refreshed, is that a sign that you haven't connected with the universe? So that's question one. All right, well, I'll answer that one. Yeah. Yes, that's what it does mean. It means that you haven't enjoyed a sufficient amount of deep sleep. So what there has been is a lot of dreaming sleep. And in the dreaming sleep, you are consuming a lot of energy. Also, we tend to lie on in bed too long. And when you do that, you're not actually gaining more energy. You're actually consuming more energy than you are gaining. So, the Shankaracharya gave a very simple regulation. And that was to get up when you wake up. Irrespective, just in case you didn't get it. (laughs) Irrespective of when you wake up. When you wake up, get up. Now, if for some reason you awaken at a sort of an ungodly hour, as we would refer to it, do get up. You may find yourself stretched or considerably stretched that day, but you will sleep like a baby that night. (laughs) And within a very small number of days, the system will have been naturalized. If you do this, if if you learn to live well, you will sleep well. And if you live well, you will find that you don't have to sleep a lot. And I've used this example before, and again, people find it astounding, but you may know that in the School of Philosophy, we hold philosophy residentials. And there people go away for a weekend or a week. And it's self-catering, so we provide our own food, etc., etc. And there was a lady in charge of the catering. This is going back many, many years. And she said to me, that when a group goes down to Townley Hall for the first time for a weekend, it consumes as much food as the senior group does in a week per head. The reason is, is that so much energy is being burnt up because the bodies are agitated or full of tensions or are twitching away or whatever it is and the minds won't stop thinking and the hearts are carrying unresolved issues. So when the human machine is in excellent order it's a remarkably efficient machine. It's like a well-tuned car. You know, you get the 50 miles to the to the gallon as opposed to the 25 which we're getting now. So does the, the dreaming at night time that would diminish more yes. if you're doing what you recommend during yes. the day. Yeah. Uh, a lot of our dreaming is what has been unresolved which is still active in the mind. It's kept at bay largely during the day because the day demands your attention to go outwards. People are conversing with you or you're having to perform activities. But at night time and there are no activities being asked of the body, and there's no conversations with other people in the mind, then the mind runs riot. And it goes over events, over and over and over. Again, I don't know how people prove this, but it is said that that over 90% of the thoughts we have, we repeat each day. 
and they're going nowhere. You will find that if you live well, you will sleep well, and sleeping well, you will enjoy a lot of deep sleep. And in enjoying a lot of deep sleep, you will not need the same amount of hours. Do you remember those old petrol stations in the west of Ireland where you used to wind the petrol out of the pump? It would take you forever to fill up your car. Well, now you're in one of these modern filling stations and your car is filled in a very short period of time. And that's why the Shankaracharya recommends this pausing between activities. Just for a moment or two, between one activity and the next, rest. And you'll find your being is replenished. There won't be a parting of the clouds and a legion of angels coming to greet you or anything like that. But there will be a revitalization of your being. And you will enter into the next activity with a certain freshness. And at the end of the day, you won't be dragging the whole day behind you. When I was a lot younger, I used to do a certain amount of work in Donegal. And this required me driving from Dublin to Donegal. And the roads were horrendous in those days. So I used to drive like a maniac. And um, I would stop in Monaghan. I'd be driving about 90 miles an hour to get to Monaghan. Then I would stop. And I think it was to buy an apple and a bar of chocolate or something like that. And what I discovered was that I used to eat the apple and the bar of chocolate at the same speed as I was driving. So I wouldn't be out of Monaghan town and there'd be this core in my hand and some silver paper on the floor of the car. Because the driving would pervade everything. And I was thinking at 90 miles an hour. And that's what we do. We bring everything forward. We're like a snowplow. We're pushing life in front of us instead of just letting it go by and, you know, staying free. Is that okay? Yeah. Yes. Anybody else? Shane, can I ask a quick question on the way down? Absolutely. Is that okay? Because mine is kind of in relation to that lady. Yes. It was basically just that, what does he have to say about napping? napping? Because I was, over the summer, I was doing the Shanga Yoga where I was getting up at five and starting at six. Yes. So I was meditating That's beforehand. in the morning, was it? <laughs> and, uh, from six to eight then we were doing it, but when I was getting home, I found myself exhausted some days where I just physically had to go for a nap yes. sometimes. So... That is just, I don't mean it to be as harsh as I'm about to say it, but that is just a reflection on an unfit mind and heart. That it's a bit like if you haven't been to a gymnasium for a long time and you go, albeit the exercises are good for you, they will cause a certain strain and resistance in the body. But if you keep practicing very quickly, the muscles are naturalized and there is no strain. Let's say you wouldn't ordinarily rise at five in the morning. If this was practiced for a period of time, then the need for that napping or that exhaustion would go. How long did you do it for? A hundred days. What? A hundred days. Well, excellent. Well done. <laughs> but if you'd gone on for another 30 years... <laughs> <it would've... laughs> it's this lady here, yeah. Hi, Shane. Just really a quick question, more so looking for some advice or some tips. I go to college in the evening time, and when I get home, I'm so wind up. It's me for an hour and a half to quiet the mind. That means I go to bed quite late. It means it's really hard to get up in the morning. So any practical tips? Well, it is an artificial life that you're living at the moment, because study 
is not meant to be at night time, believe it or not. It's meant to be in the morning time. That is the ideal time to study. Anyway, you find the way your life is unfolding that you're obliged to study at night. So the mind is being fed with this new information, and so it's digesting it and activated by it and all of that. Anyway, that's the way it is. So what is necessary for you is to learn to drop it. What would be very good is, when you return home, is to come to a deep rest for about five minutes. And just let, let everything subside. Don't, don't quell the mind. Don't force it into a, a silence. But just connect with your senses. Just hear whatever sounds there are. Be aware of the breath passing in and out of the body. And you'll find that the mind will become quiet and it will let the activities of the day go. Don't feed the mind with reruns of Emmerdale and uh, vampire films and things like that. And also not meatloaf's bat out of hell. Just nice music or literature which brings about a quietude of mind. And then just before you get into the bed, pause again. Pause again. And let go today. Put down the day. It's very interesting. We put on physical clothes ordinarily so that we can present ourselves to the world. And then when we get into our bed, we take off our physical clothes. But we don't take off the mental and emotional ones. That's what we should learn to do. Every day, take off your life. Take off your overdraft, your future hopes, your past regrets, everything. Put them in a little drawer beside your bed. You can take them out the next morning if you want to. It's normally a drawer full of rubbish, so I wouldn't bother. But you can t take them off and just become a clean person again. It won't take very long to do that. At the start, it may not appear to be effective. You may find your mind is still active. But if you do this regularly, as was said to that lady, it will become effective. You can enter into a profound peace and stillness in a very short period of time. And if you can then present yourself for sleep in that state, you will sleep beautifully. And you will be refreshed. So that's it. Thank you. Okay. Yes. Thank you. A very well thought out lecture and beautifully delivered, Jane. Thank, Thank you. you. Question arises out of My one cousin, of... by the way. <laughs> <laughs> question arises from one of the earlier answers and it was talking about pausing in between. Can you describe that pause and explain how you would achieve that pause? Is it, I'll sit quietly for a while, or is it much more than that? First of all, it's not something you achieve. It's actually naturally there. Like a full stop in language only indicates a natural space. When, say, a sentence has a single idea in it, there's a natural space before you launch to speak the second idea. An activity has an end, and another activity has a beginning. And by definition, there must be a space between them. But we tend to fill that space with mental activity and emotional activity. We can't fill it with physical activity, because there is a physical gap. But mentally and emotionally, we fill it. And this is a classic example. You walk to the bus stop. And now you're at the bus stop. And what you say is, what will I think about now? <laughs> because I should think about something now, otherwise I'd be wasting my time. But what I think about when I'm at bus stops is a waste of time. <laughs> <laughs> so don't think. If you're standing at a bus stop, stand at a bus stop. 
If you're drinking a cup of coffee, drink a cup of coffee. What we're doing is we're filling the spaces. We're filling the spaces. So between the activities, so let's say you're coming to the end of an activity. You may be thinking about the next activity already. How I'm going to do that and what I'm going to say and all of that. And that's what we're doing. Most people on Friday are planning what they're going to do at the weekend. People think that they work five days a week. They don't. They work about two and a half days. They're already planning on Wednesday afternoon. So that's what we need to do. Give your full attention to the activity in hand. You will naturally come to an end and just enjoy that rest which the creation provides. It's not a gap that you put in between activities. It's naturally there. So what I would say to you is you find it. Look for it. Look for that little space. And you will find it. And it's there. It's not like a minute long or two minutes long or that sort of thing. It's just a moment of connecting. I have another question. Can you say something about the whole idea of stillness being death and without death we can't create? And when we're still, we are dying because we're not creating. Right. <laughs> Just take the stronger tablet, that's the first part of the answer. <laughs> All right. Stillness is not death. It's that point from which life springs into action. We mistake action for life and inactivity for death. This is not true. Life is life, whether there is stillness or inactivity or activity. And creativity, real creativity, arises in moments of absolute stillness. This is where you're freed of all you know, and now the unknown reveals itself to you, where you see something in a new way. So stillness is essential for creativity. It's not that there is a death when there's stillness and there is life when there's an activity. There is life when there's stillness and there's expression of that life when there's activity. There is no death. There is no death at all. No such thing as death. In the Sanskrit language, which is a spiritual language, in other words, every word has a spiritual meaning. The word for birth is the appearance of a form. It is not the beginning of existence, but the appearance of a form. And the word for death simply means major change. So the change from baby to child is a minor change. From child to youth is another minor change. From youth to adult is another minor change. And the one from elderly to death is a major change. It is not the cessation of existence. There is no death. There is just change of form. Perhaps appearance and disappearance. But not existence and non-existence. Okay, thank you. Okay. Then the lady behind you. I think we seem to have it all wrong. I'm just wondering, how can we teach our children? Yes. What doesn't work is words without authority. 
So saying to a child, you are never, ever, ever to lie, and then when the phone rings, tell him, I'm out. <laughs> right? That has no authority. So we must live our words. It's very interesting. When a wise man repeats himself, it has significance. And the Shankaracharya, on numerous occasions, said that there must be concurrence between the feelings in your heart, the thoughts in your mind, and the activities in your body. They must be united. However, we're feeling one thing, thinking another thing, and doing a third thing. And there is a story which those of you who are in the school will have heard, but it's a good story, so it's worth repeating. And it's the story of a lady who travels a long distance to bring her son to see a wise man. Because the, the son just consumes vast quantities of sweets. And the mother is concerned about this and she wants the sage to give a bit of advice. So she presents herself in front of the sage and tells him of the child's fixation with consuming sweets. And the sage says to her, come back in a week. So she trundles all the way home. It's a long, long journey anyway. And a week passes and she makes the whole journey back to the sage and she presents the child to the sage again. And the sage looks at the child and very firmly says, stop eating sweets. And that was the end of that. And she said, but why didn't you say that to me last week? You could have said it to me the first time I came. And he said, I had to give up eating sweets first. <laughs> and you see, and when you do that, then you have authority. So, we give lots of advice to children, but we don't live that advice. So it doesn't really have authority. Now, the way it is with children is that children have absolute faith in their parents initially. It's completely misplaced as we know, but they have absolute faith in their parents and they're totally devoted. Because they have absolute faith in their parents, they believe everything the parents says and does, and because they're devoted, they seek to imitate their parents. This is a real tragedy for a child. But anyway, that's what they do. But after a while, they see that there's a gap, that we, the parents or the adults, have an integrity gap. We say one thing, we do another. So we have to close that integrity gap. If we live what we say, then we will have immense authority. Immense authority. And our children will seek to fulfill the good advice we give them. But if we don't, if we don't, when they get to be about 13, they become devout Christians again. They start praying to God, please don't let me turn out like him or her. <laughs> and of course it's too late because they do turn out like you and I. So, that's it. Yes, anybody, this gentleman here? Yeah, just quickly in regard to meditation, how essential is it to get the half hour twice a day to maintain good energy levels. I mean, not that I have a busy life, but if I yeah. did... No, I understand. There are different systems of meditation, and I'm not familiar with other systems. So when I talk about meditation, I talk about the only one I'm familiar with, which is the one that the school offers. And the measure there is 30 minutes twice a day. So that is the real measure. Let's say X number of hours was the true measure for sleep. If you got less of that, you can still function, but it's not as enjoyable as if you got 
a full night's sleep. So 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the evening will give you that energy to make life absolutely easy, where you live well within your capacity and that you can meet the adversity that befalls us every so often. So that is the measure. Now, in the school, when people are introduced to meditation, 30 minutes twice a day is a, a challenging amount of time. So people are introduced to it and they practice for 15 minutes in the morning and 15 minutes in the evening. And then as they gain a certain strength and more energy from that 15 minutes of practice in the morning and the evening, we move it to 20 minutes and then 25 and 30. All that's necessary for a meditator is that he or she be sincere. That is, you sit down twice a day for 30 minutes and to the best of your ability, you attend to the mantra. If you do that, if you play fair, in the words of the Shankaracharya, you get all the benefits. You only have to play fair. There's a marvelous thing about meditation is you don't have to be particularly intelligent to meditate, as is evident by most of the attendees at the School of Philosophy. <laughs> Nor do you have to be particularly nice. So you don't have to have a PhD, you don't have to be a saint, you don't have to be anything. Because, and the reason why you don't actually have to be exceptional in any way is because the mantra does all the work. It's like an excellent piece of medicine. All you have to do is take it. You don't have to have a particular type of body that is good at taking medicine. You just have to open your mouth and swallow it. So if you're willing for 30 minutes twice a day just to give your mind to the best of your ability to this mantra, it will do all the work. It is, what I call it, spiritual medicine, for want of a better phrase. And it will do the work. If you said to me, well, I want to meditate and I want to do it for 10 or 15 minutes, what you'll probably find is, after a while, you won't meditate at all. The other thing that you might think is, well, I don't have 30 minutes, I've already lived a very, very busy life and I don't have 30 minutes in the morning or 30 minutes in the evening. But if you meditate, you will find that you have an immense amount of time available to you now because you've become remarkably efficient. You become decisive, you execute work excellently, all of these sorts of things. So you'll find that you've plenty of time. And the truth of the matter is, it's a sad life if we have to spend, say, you know, the majority of our waking life trying to earn a living and maintaining a few relationships with offspring and spouse and clearing a ridiculous mortgage that you should never have taken out in the first place. <laughs> right. You know, that's a sad life. So, so a human being, a conscious human being, should be capable of enhancing the life of a spouse, rearing three or four children, having an excellent career, and still plenty of time left over to inquire into the real purpose of human existence. And meditation makes you a rich human being. A truly rich human being. So, that's it. Yeah, okay. Thanks. This lady here. Thanks. I'm just wondering, I can obviously see the benefits of meditation, but my question relates to decision-making, basically, and indecision. And there's so many good things that you could do with your day and 
Many opportunities. How do you make the right decision? I start off with a humorous example, first of all, and I've used it before in a talk. It's in a talk called Philosophy and Love, and what it says is that if you go out to dine with somebody and they want to eat everything on the menu, you are not dining with a lover of food, you're dining with a pig. <laughs> right? And if the mind is enthralled by lots of different things, one possibility is that it is gluttonous in its approach, that it wants lots of different things. Is that okay? Now, why does the mind want lots of different things? Because it hasn't found that one thing which will really satisfy the heart. So, it's a bit like this. If we go back many, 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 many years, and if I imagine that there was a little black book with all the numbers of the girls in it, when one finds the wife, you burn the book. There's no need for the other numbers, because you have now found that which satisfies the heart. So, what is necessary is to understand your own heart and what satisfies it. Because different natures are satisfied by different things. There are some people who are absolutely natural in the physical world. You put a, a saw or a, or a pickaxe into their hands and they're masters of their environment. Other people, they love to understand and other people love to relate. So the first thing you have to discover is now fundamentally, essentially, you're an active person, a devotional person, or you're an intellectual person. If you're an active person in something like being a guard or a soldier or something like that, it's a natural career for that sort of person. If you're a devotional person, then, you know, maybe running a restaurant or something like that. What you know is about people who run restaurants is they always come up to you and ask you, did you enjoy the meal? If you say it was terrible, you've broken their hearts. It's very important to them that you were pleased. If you're an intellectual person, you don't give a tinker's curse whether they enjoy the meal. You try to understand why people dine out so much. <laughs> you want to understand. For you, knowledge is your satisfaction. So that's the first thing you've got to discover. The second thing you've got to discover then is within that, within that, there will be certain talents and attributes and qualities there which will easily allow you to express yourself in particular environments. So some people have the gift of speech, other people have, I don't know, gift of something else. You need to study your own nature. And when you study it, it'll be absolutely obvious where you should apply it. If you took a look at Pavarotti, you wouldn't have said to yourself, well, I think you should become a ballet dancer. You know, that's what strikes me. The very shape or the scale of the man would have ruled that one out. And if you listen to his voice, it was very obvious that's what he should do. He should sing to the world. If you have brothers and sisters, it'll be very obvious. If people suggested particular careers to them, you say, oh, no, no, I don't think they would enjoy that or they would be particularly good at it. Because you understand their natures. So what's important is to understand your nature. What we often do is, you know when children are filling out sort of CAO forms and these appalling things and they, you know, they think, do I want to do media studies or electrical engineering or something like that? That's not the way to approach it. What do I want to contribute to the world? That's an excellent question. What more do I want to understand? 
they're the sort of questions a person should ask. And if you do that, then you find that how you wish to express yourself in the world will present itself to you, rather than you have to go around the world three times looking for it. So that's the key. Now, to go back to your thing, if you find there's all these things presenting themselves and the mind is split here, there and ever, it means the mind is too agitated. So it needs to become stiller. The second thing is you're using the wrong part of the mind to make a decision. There are four parts of the mind, but I'll just deal with two. There's the intellectual part and there's the thinking part. And the thinking part, its job is to present pros and cons, proposals and counter-proposals. It says things like, Watch the vampire fellow. Oh, no, go to bed. Record it and go to bed. But I'd like to see it tonight. Ah, but sure, they always turn out the same. It's doing all this proposal and counter-proposal. It actually can't make a decision. All it does is if it makes a proposal, it makes a counter one. It then counters that one, and then it counter-counters that one. So it leaves you exhausted with no decision. People do this when they buy a house. You know, if you're using that wrong part of the mind, you say, well, it's, it's 1,237 square feet, and the sitting room is an average of a 13 foot 11 by 14 foot 9, and the garden is southwest facing. Well, that's, a, that's not a plus, that's only a half, because south would be better. But the bus does run close by, however, there's a tinker's encampment down the road. All these sort of things. And the mind prepares all these pros and cons. And when you're exhausted, then you add them all up and you find there's 57 pros and there's 49 cons. But you examine them more closely and you say, well, I better weigh them because some of them are more important than others. So I, I'll add a value of 3 to that one and 2 to this one. So now it's the pros are 197 and the cons are 148. However, I'm too tired to decide, so I'm just going to go to bed. <laughs> and, and then you wake up the next morning and you think of other pros and cons. Right? Now, that's not the way to do it. Right? The way to do it is to fall absolutely still. Absolutely still. And then the mind will give you the answer. You won't produce it. It'll be presented to you. And again, I've told this story before, and it's, it's, uh, it's a, it reflects on me very badly. But anyway, uh, myself and my wife, we had bought this house, which managed to fall down in the majority of it. And so we had to move back with our parents, with my parents, which was an amazing experience for my wife. So we're back there with two children, me and my wife, in my parents' house. And I'm effectively insolvent, and it looks like we're going to be there for a long, long time. Anyway, <laughs> through working hard and all that sort of stuff, the finances got into better order. And I said, look, it's time to start looking for a new house. However, there were certain places I was definitely not going to live. A man of my standing should only live in certain areas of Dublin, as you might imagine. Now, when I say this place, you're not to take offence, right? So one of the things was I was not living in Bray, right? <laughs> because Blackpool and its poor cousins do not attract me at all. So we went searching everywhere for houses, mainly houses that were worth far more than we could afford. So this goes on for about three or four months. And I had in my mind, if you know Shankill, there's a church in Shankill, there's a sort of a V there, and I would only go that far. I was not going far. Right? People in Bray were very rough people. It might do me damage. Anyway, 
this is going back a long, long time. So there was a program called The Big Match on ITV. And sometimes it would show matches from the fourth division in England. So I, there was a match on, and I think it was like Scunthorpe against Torquay, right? And it was nil all after about 75 minutes. And if that match was still on, it would still be nil all, right? <laughs> the, both teams were incapable of getting a goal or doing anything interesting. So eventually, I got out of the couch and I said to my wife, look, we just go for a drive. Now, up to that point, we'd always planned our trips as to where we're going to look at. But I said, this time, we just drive. So we drove. And getting closer to Shank Hill and the mind, <laughs> the mind is thinking, now don't forget turn at the church, you know. <laughs> so, so I get to Shank Hill and I said, should we just go on? We just go on. So I'm now entering the unknown. I'm in, ju- I'm in jungle territory, right? So we drive in, and as I drive through Bray, sure, it all confirms everything, you know, little shops, you know, all, anyway, dreadful place as far as I was concerned, right? And we drive through Bray, we go through the top of it, and for some reason, I turn into an estate. And it's a house for sale. And I said to my wife, that's our new home. And she says, yes, you're right. And we lived very happily and brave for a long, long time. <laughs> but the point about it is, the mind was open, you see. It wasn't working off ideas. If you form in your mind, with this thinking mind, the sort of person you marry, you'll never find him or her. They don't make them like that. <laughs> <laughs> What we have is we have a lot of knowledge which we try to superimpose. And because the knowledge is limited, life doesn't unfold, or life doesn't present itself according to that limited knowledge. So the real secret in life is to be free of what you know. Not to use what you know, but to be free of it. So what you may find is there's too much knowledge presenting itself, too much conflicting knowledge what's required is for the mind to become still and if you do that say it like this your heart will speak to you and your mind will not understand what your heart is saying and if your mind doesn't understand what your heart is saying then you're most likely right it is that intuitive knowledge which is beyond rationality it's a very deep silent knowledge the truth of the matter is let's say you're talking about career What you want is a vocation. And a vocation is a calling. And if you become very, very still, you will be called. You'll be called to do that which fulfills your heart. So that's it. I was going to ask you a question, actually. Yes. Measure sounds fantastic yes. and everything that goes along with it. But there's this little thing called habit which yes. just seems to pervade every good measured thought. So how do you put manners on habit, I guess, is the yes. question. If we use bad ways to overcome habit, then there are two possibilities. One is you will be defeated. The habit will win. Or else it will be excruciating as you try to defeat it. Normally, habit is the fruit of past effort. 
And sometimes what we try to do is we try to defeat habit with an equal gross effort. Like we sew our lips together so we can't squash the Leonidas sweets in between them. <laughs> Something like that. We try, you know, very coarse methods for overcoming habit. But there are two outstanding ways to overcome habit. One is love and the other is reason. There's a man I know who was a raving alcoholic, and I mean a very serious alcoholic. And he was married to an outstanding woman who stood by him during all these crazy years, and he had a daughter who was an outstanding woman. As his wife was giving birth to the second child, he said to God, if you grant me a son, I will stop drinking. And a boy was born, and he stopped drinking. Because he wanted to love a son. And because of that desire or love for a son, he had all the strength in the world to give up drinking. So, you will find that if you can do it out of love, you will do it. People will make great sacrifices for their children or parents and all sorts of things. Without love, they couldn't do it. And the other way is reason. One time, a lady came up to me in a refreshment room in Northumberland Road, and she asked me, does the school have a way to help people give up smoking? Nobody comes up to me and asks me, is there a way of proving the existence of God? It's things like, you know, is there a way of giving up smoking or something like that? Anyway, that's what she asked. And I said, actually, no, I don't think so. And then I remembered Leon McLaren, the man who founded the School of Philosophy, had once said to me, he said, if you discover that smoking is a complete and total waste of time, you will give it up just like that. So I said that to her. And at that point in time, somebody else joined the conversation, and when I turned around, she was gone. Anyway, about a year later, this lady tapped me on the shoulder. I didn't remember her, and she said, I gave them up. <laughs> you see? Now, I didn't know whether she'd, you know, handed her children over to the police or something like or whatever. But anyway, she says, I gave them up. So I said, I'm very pleased. And what is it that you have given up? And she said, I gave up cigarettes. And then I remembered. And she said, you know, when you said to me that when you realize that cigarettes are a total and complete waste of time, you will give them up like that. In that moment, I realized that they were a total and complete waste of time, and I gave them up. Like that. Now that's the power of reason. When you see something clearly, that this is useless behavior, or it's destructive, or whatever it is, then you will give it up like that. A lot of the times, wanting to give up a habit is really an aspiration. It's a struggle between two things. I really love sweets, but I want a smaller stomach. In fact, if the worst sweets that made my stomach smaller, I'd eat them. <laughs> you know? so, so we don't really want to give up the sweets. We just want the smaller stomach. And there are times we say, oh, to hell with it. Sure, I'm cuddly, you know, and charming, <laughs> right? And sure, she just have to accept me as I am, as we gorge ourselves through the second layer. That's not particularly useful. So we don't want it as an aspiration or as a fight between two mutually exclusive things. We want it where the mind decides, and that this is reason, that this is useless. I, I'd say this to finish, perhaps. I was in a meeting with Leon McLaren, again, the man who founded the School of Philosophy, and there was about a hundred of us in the room, and I had worked 
that stays as a chartered accountant in practice which is basically legalized criminality, right? But anyway, <laughs> and I considered myself a very dedicated follower of philosophy who had a real and deep desire to become a wise man. And it was a meeting of men. I can't remember why it was a meeting of men, but it was a meeting of, there was only men in the room. And he said, gentlemen, one day, all your actions will have to become honest ones. I was sure he was looking at me. <laughs> and literally, I broke out in a cold sweat. I can remember the sweat pouring down on the inside of the collar of my shirt. As my whole life flashed in front of me and how I did deals and you know, bought and sold things and all that sort of stuff and the lies and all of this, I thought, I won't be able to do this. I won't be able to survive if I become an honest man. What the mind said was, but you cannot become a wise man if you're a dishonest man. So I decided that I would go for wisdom and endeavor to become an honest man. Did you give but up accountancy? I actually did stop practicing accountancy. <laughs> but in fact, that's not necessary. I mean, if there's any uh, accountants in practice there, that's not... <laughs> it's not necessary. Actually, I finish with one more story, right? To prove this point, so as it turned out, I did give up practicing accounts and I started to advise people and became uh, a director or chairman of companies. But anyway, I was a director or chairman, I can't remember the time, of a particular company. And they were paying me 12,000 per annum to be, let's say, a director of this company. And I was in need of more money. But I also felt that I deserved a bit more. And in my mind's eye, I thought that if they gave me 15,000, this is going back quite a number of years now, that was a 25% increase, and that would be excellent, right? Excellent. So I said to them, at a board meeting, I said, look, I think that I deserve more money. And I'm happy to leave it with you. You decide how much I should be paid, and whatever you decide, that's fine. So I got a phone call the next day, and... I was told that they had decided to pay me 24,000 random. So I stuck a handkerchief in my mouth to stifle the scream of delight and said, thank you. And I said, can I ask you how you decided? And one of the directors simply asked, where would we find a man who cares for us so much? And that's why they decided on the 24th, which was a very generous package for those days. So, virtue does pay. Does pay off. Honesty absolutely pays. It is, it is absolutely practical to be an honest man and to enjoy the goodies of life. So, that's it. Thank you. I found the, the presentation very convincing and putting up certain things that one would want to aspire to. But it's such a huge kind of I'm intimidated by the transformation of life that would be necessary to get to that point. And I can only see it happening over, say, in some kind of planned change thing. And if there any tips or advice to give on how one might address, suppose we buy entirely into what you say, yeah. how one might take the initial steps uh, to yeah. be that kind of person and live that kind of life. 
So you'd like to before death comes, that yeah. sort of idea. <laughs> That's if it does come. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, there is a very simple way, very simple way for this to be, in a way, instantaneous. When a mother has a child, it doesn't take her a long time to care for the child. The care is instantaneous and at the highest level from the very beginning. And why is that? And the reason is obviously because there is unconditional love for the child. The reason we don't care for ourselves is we don't truly love ourselves. So the simple way is to truly love yourself. Love this incredible body that you've been given to travel around. And love this mind. And love this heart. And if you do, you will care for it at the highest level. If it's just something that you think you should do, like take vitamin tablets, if they're not beside the kettle in the morning, you'll forget to take them. The key is to really love yourself. It's an incredible thing to have been granted a body, mind and heart. And so one should really care for it. And the journey is so delightful when it's really well cared for. Just like, you know, if you get your car serviced, that lovely sound from the engine and the enjoyment of the journey. So the thing is to really love yourself. It's a ridiculous thing that we, we ask others to love us when we don't love ourselves. It's not very encouraging, isn't it? You know, you find it difficult to love yourself, but I'd really like you to. <laughs> it's the love, in a way, is the simplest way for there to be the abundance of energy and strength necessary to do something. When I was dating my wife-to-be, and I was a rugby player in those days, my wife attended every single rugby match. So rain, hail, snow, she was there at the side of the pitch. Sometimes she made up the entire audience, right? <laughs> Even though I was an outstanding rugby player. <laughs> and, and I thought that she loved rugby. <laughs> when we got married, I never, ever, ever saw her at the side of a pitch again. She had all the strength in the world to be at a pitch while I was boyfriend. As husband, she I bother. <laughs> the other way is where there is purpose. Where there is meaning or purpose to an activity. Or where there is love. Then all the energy and the strength is made available. Then it is as easy as tying a shoelace. Literally is that. What happens is that for an awful lot of activities in our life, we have very little love, and we find them very, very difficult. So, in a work situation, you can have a you know, man or a woman, and they find it very difficult to apply themselves to their work. But to their hobby, they can stay up till two in the morning in a, in a cold shed at the back of the garden, sticking swastikas on little plastic aeroplanes, or whatever it is that their hobby is. <laughs> So that's the key. That's the key. Love yourself. Yes, anybody else? This gentleman here. In relation to daydreaming. Yes. Surely using your imagination is a form of daydreaming. And 
very often is very creative. Some of the very best ideas and advances in and progress has been achieved through a form of daydream. Well, in philosophy, we differentiate between vision and creativity on one side and daydreaming on the other side. Vision is where you see an acorn and you see the potentiality of the fully grown oak tree. So it is based on a current reality. There's a kernel of truth in it and you see its potential full and glorious expression. Daydreaming has no center of truth in it. It is based on how you feel at that particular point in time. So the classic example is winning the lottery. And I just make up the stupid way we do do these things. First of all, we tend not to imagine winning a million. What could you do with a million? <laughs> so it is at least 50 to 100 million. And what you do is you start to divide it up. And depending on the, if you're in a particularly good day, Granny gets a million and St. Vincent de Paul gets another one and all of that. And then on another day, when you're being practical, you think, well, sure, there's no point in giving Granny a million. You know, she could die at any stage. <laughs> and what with estate tax and all that sort of stuff, there'd be no point in giving it to her. So I won't. I just buy that red Ferrari instead. And I bring her for a drive in it. That should kill her off. <laughs> it doesn't have a basis in truth. It is just depending on the mood you're in. And it'll be different each time. And the other thing is, if you do win the lottery, it will definitely be different how you utilize the money. That's the difference between daydreaming and vision or creativity. So vision is excellent. Absolutely excellent. It has been able to look deeply into the present moment and to see the future possibility. Daydreaming is disconnecting from the present moment and wandering in a sentimental swamp of non-comprehension. <laughs> yes, anybody else? No, thank you for a very inspiring talk. No problem. Uh, just two questions, if I can remember them. But the first is in relation to replenishing this energy. You said we connect with the universe and one with the universe. Could you or would you substitute that the universe, I don't know how you define it, with God or the Creator? And maybe the energy with this unconditional love that you receive in order to be able to give. Yes, you connect with the all. Whether you call it the universe or God or Creator, in a way, depends on what your philosophical you or religious... The, the universe that you... How do you define the universe? The universe as being the all. The all. The all. Which is another way for saying God, if you have to be religious. Yeah, I don't mean that you're connecting with all the galaxies and all of that yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, so imp it's impersonal to me, but God would be a personal God that you can get this energy to be able to... It doesn't have to be a personal God. There are different beliefs or different understandings. So it can be a personal God or it can be the source of all which is not seen to be personal. But there's a truth, though, about what, what this is ultimately. Absolutely. That you have to discover. That leads to a second question but we don't achieve it until the bliss of the next life. No. No. There's no need for it to be postponed. And you think it's possible, but... Absolutely. One thousand percent. 
you say that we all agree with maybe the list of things that we're not really achieving, it, even if we may be trying. Yes, we may not be achieving it, but we're not achieving it because we don't approach it in the right way. Again, to take Jesus' words, having eyes they see not, having ears they hear not, neither do they understand. But there are ways of using the eyes and ears so that we can understand. And there is a way of using this human instrument so that it fully reflects our spiritual essence. And there's a way of using it so that it distorts that essential essence or hides it or covers it partially. So what philosophy or true religion sets out are systems whereby let's say, again to use religious terms, you can find the kingdom of heaven within you. I mean, the marvelous thing about it, again, to just take Jesus' words, is they were present tense. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Now, if it is within you, it makes sense that there must be a way of verifying that. Why would it be hidden? And there are ways, and one of the great ways that's available to modern man and woman is meditation. Prayer does it, and other ways do do. But the great thing about meditation is that meditation, anybody can meditate. You don't have to be particularly intelligent. Nor do you have to be particularly nice. <laughs> All you have to be is sincere. And the Shankaracharya promises that. He says that anybody who meditates sincerely gets all the benefits. And one of the benefits is the direct, undoubting experience of the truth about yourself. So. Thank you. I was going to ask you, what form of meditation do you recommend, or is there any particular form? Well, I can only recommend one, because I've only practiced one, and that form is the form that is practiced in the School of Philosophy, which is a mantra-based system. The measure in the School of Philosophy is that a person, in the fullness of time, meditates for 30 minutes in the morning and 30 minutes in the evening, and they are given a mantra, and a mantra is fundamentally a combination of sounds that has a particular power. So, various sounds produce different emotional effects, let's say, in the heart. If you play a national anthem, ordinarily a person's heart fills with pride. If you play the theme music from Jaws, they get out of the bath very quickly, or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> The mantra is based on the science of sound. So it's a particular combination of sounds. And just like, again, another example is, no matter where you go in the world, if you say, shh, people become quiet. Because that sibilant sound has a power of bringing about silence. So there are certain sounds which can bring about peace and stillness and contentment. The mantras of the mantra system have that power. What happens is the mind, when it begins to meditate, is full of all the cares of the world. But in attending to the mantra, it puts down all other thoughts and all other feelings. And eventually, puts down the mantra. So having put down everything, you are now in that still presence of yourself. And you know that it is not of the body, of the mind, or of the heart, but something transcendental. So that's how people practice meditation. Now, there are other systems, but I know nothing of them, so I can't comment on them. 
you speak of Chakra, Sharia, is it? Shankara, Sharia. Could you tell me something about him? There was a philosopher called Shankara who lived in the 8th and 9th centuries in India. And Shankara to India is as Socrates or Plato was to the West. So if we were to say that Socrates or Plato were the greatest of the philosophers of the West, Shankara, by a, a large number of people, would be considered to have been the greatest philosopher of the East. And just as, let's say, Plato had Platonism as his philosophy, Shankara restated a very ancient philosophy, but in a way that could be heard and practiced by the people of his time. And the technical term for it is Advaita, a loose translation in English would be not to, or the philosophy of unity, which basically is saying that behind all the differences that we appear to observe and experience, there's an underlying unity. And in the experience of that underlying unity, life is fulfilled, blissful, free, peaceful, etc. Now, Shankara lived for 32 years. And in order to continue the tradition, he set up four seats of learning in India, north, south, east and west. And so for over 1,200 years now, these seats have, for the vast majority of time, have been filled. Currently, there are four Shankaracharya. And so that's Shankara and Acharya. And Acharya means teacher. So a Shankaracharya is a teacher of Shankara's philosophy like a Platonist is somebody who follows Plato. So, in the school of philosophy, when you hear somebody, like myself or others, saying Shankaracharya, we're referring to a particular man who occupied one of those positions. In the case of the school, it's the Shankaracharya of the North. And it was a particular man who died in 1997. So his name, or his assumed name, the name he took on, was Sri Shantananda Saraswati. His title was Shankaracharya. So Shankaracharya is a title. It's an actual philosophical or spiritual position in India, of which there are four. And through a whole series of incredible factors come together at a particular point in time, the man who founded the school of philosophy came to meet the Shankaracharya. Having searched all his life for a system, a system of knowledge, that would help men and women to become free and live just lives. In 1961, he came to hear of this man, wrote a few letters to him, and then in 1965 had what is called an audience with him. And what he did was he took all the questions that were in the minds of the people in the school and he put them to the Shankaracharya. And the Shankaracharya answered them, as far as I'm concerned, gloriously and fully and amazingly. And then the school, or the, the senior people in the school, would have put the answers into practice for about two years. Leon McLaren, the founder of the school, went back out again with the next load of questions, got the next load of answers, we practiced them, went out another two years. And over a period between 1965 and 1993, I think visited 13 or 14 times, and the school has put questions on, obviously, philosophy, on religion, on economics, on love, on marriage, on family, on the education of the young, on 
health, on just a myriad of subjects. And this man answered them all. If you attend the School of Philosophy, the material that is presented to the students is based on these answers. Either quoting directly or answers constructed uh, from the answers we got. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you. It's okay, very good. If you have long periods, and I think maybe a lot of people can apply to this, long periods of anxiety, I think someone's explained this, that you can then latch on to your greatest fear. If a person's afraid of dying, they become hypochondriacs. Absolutely. In certain scenarios, if people are not stressed by nature, meditation should work quickly for them. But for people that, have, you know, that would have experienced a lot of that, do you feel that, that meditation in itself and isolation could be the very thing that would help to get back to the, the acorn? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. Mm-hmm. I'll say it like this. There's nothing more powerful than meditation. I don't care whether your mother used to boil you in a saucepan and, uh, <laughs> you know, your teachers didn't like you and everybody stole your pencils at school and all of that sort of stuff. Your past is really irrelevant. Everything can be put down. So there's not a trace of past or future, but there's just pure presence. And in that pure presence, you experience the truth about yourself, which in one description is limitless consciousness, limitless knowledge, and limitless bliss. Then what happens is you come out of meditation, but you have been filled, and you have the experience, so it doesn't disappear on you. It's a bit like if you go to a gymnasium and you you've strengthened your muscles in the gymnasium. You don't become a weakling as you walk out of the the gymnasium. That strength is now carried out into daily activity. So meditation really strengthens you. And then there is no more fear. And there is no anxiety. If you could come to know that you are eternal, what would you worry about? The EU putting up the interest rates? If you're eternal, all this is nothing. It's just a passing show. So you need to know two things. One is that you're eternal, and the second thing is that you're completely unaffected. Because it could be eternal misery. Get beaten up forever. But what you can discover is that you're completely unaffected. And how the wise have described it, then life is like watching a film. Let's say you go to films. You can enjoy a thriller. You can enjoy a tragedy. You can enjoy a romantic comedy. You can enjoy all films because they don't affect you. Nothing is actually happening to you. It's a picture show in front of you for your entertainment. We're just taking it seriously. (laughs) when you know a film's a film you stop interfering so I'm going to just see how this turns out and you enjoy it so all this controlling and wondering what does life hold for me and will I get multiple cirrhosis or will anybody love me when I'm old can none of them love me now so it's not possible (laughs) we spend a lot of time protecting ourselves and we even use philosophy and religion to protect ourselves but when you discover who you are then nothing can harm you 
And as I said, that's the end of all fear. And that's the way a child is, you see. A child doesn't think, well, gosh, in 70 years I could get multiple sclerosis, you know? And what happens if a wheel falls off this pram when my mother's not looking at it? <laughs> it goes down the hill. It doesn't think like that. It thinks, God, lying in pram is fantastic fun. <laughs> so, that's where it is. Anyway, there's this gentleman here. Question then, is it possible for an atheist to reject the concept of universal energy and find this happiness and peace and balance that you well, to. Well, the way it is is this. There's one thing which you are obliged to believe in, which nobody can say, I don't believe in. You cannot believe in your own non-existence. You can't go around thinking, I don't think I'm here. <laughs> right? <laughs> because the very thought is actually proof that you are here. So the one thing that you can accept is that you have existence. But if you are, say, a philosopher or a, a rational being, you can say, but I don't know what that existence is. Perhaps it is purely physical. Perhaps emotions are merely chemical reactions of the brain. But you have to admit existence. So in this school of philosophy, and in great, what I would call great philosophies, Beliefs aren't essential. In fact, they can become a hindrance because you then go looking for that which simply supports an existing belief. If that existing belief is either erroneous or narrow, it then becomes a limit to your unfoldment. The only advantage is if it is true belief. And what true belief does is it allows you to move very quickly. So let's say you ask to get to my house and I give you directions, and you believe the directions, you can proceed with speed. And it's actually enjoyable. But if you have doubts about my directions, then it's a much slower journey and is not as pleasant. So whether a person is religious, not religious, an atheist, not an it, is irrelevant. What is a precondition is that you have an inquiring mind that you are willing to look into the deep questions of life and you're willing to seek to verify them rather than simply accept them, which is for sheep, and reject them, which is just for narrow-minded people. But to inquire into them. And the truth of the matter is, the really great sages are always inquiring. You spoke about the importance of, first you have to love yourself, but can't there be a danger there that that could become a self-indulgent thing and that it's important to distinguish? My experience has been that at times when I've forgotten about myself yes. and put that focus on to someone else, yes. I have subsequently forgotten my own misery. That's true. Now, you're absolutely right. There is a danger. And that's why in the school we meet in groups, because nobody will never let you fall in love with your little miserable self. <laughs> they won't allow you. You can fall in love with your little self, and your little self could be that you are a handsome man or a beautiful woman, or that you have a particularly sharp mind, or you have some glorious talents. Okay? We call it a little self. And that always leads to comparison with others and deeming yourself to be superior to others. I am more handsome or more intelligent or 
have greater talents than others. So when we talk about falling in love with yourself, we don't mean that. We mean with your true self. And the natural condition of that true self is to express that love to all. So it delights in caring for others. So that's the first thing. The second thing, you're absolutely right. The marvellous thing about service is you forget yourself. And we all want this little self to be taken so seriously. But the truth of the matter is the only time we're happy is when we forget ourselves. This is why we drink so much. (laughs) Because when you drink, you forget your little self. When you sleep, you forget your little self. So we like to do that as well. When you're being entertained by television, you forget yourself. What man is doing nowadays is finding many, many, many diverse ways of forgetting his little self because it's such a miserable little self. But there's another way of doing it, and that is to remember your true self. You can do it either way. You can forget your false self or you can remember your true self. Both lead to the same. The nice thing about forgetting your false self is that it engages you in uplifting the lives of others. And that's why people find service so delightful. I mean, true service. Could you forget yourself? So, does that answer? Yeah, very good. And then there was some person... Yes. Is it true or not that all philosophies have their origins in what are known as the divine virtues? It's not how I would say it. Because I don't think virtue is the origin of philosophy. There's something behind virtue. What's behind virtue is truth itself, of which the virtues are a glorious expression. But virtues aren't the source. The virtues is the collective name for charity, faith, hope. So those are the strong aspects of this life we are desiring. Yes, but behind that, I think there's something greater still. And I say it like this, that in the search for philosophy, you're looking for that ultimate source which has no opposite. Which has no opposite. Now, virtue has an opposite, which is vice. If you take the story of Adam and Eve, right, and the fall in the Garden of Eden, they were asked not to eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, we normally consider that story to be the beginning of evil. But the fall of man is the beginning of evil. If you actually read the words, they're very, very precise. The fall of man is the beginning of good and evil. Both of them. You can't have one without the other. You can't have a one-sided penny. So if you've got goodness, you have badness. If you've got virtue, you've got vice. And in that story, what it says is that Man did eat of this tree and gained the knowledge of good and evil. So, if we are inquiring philosophers, we're left with a question. Before this fall, did man know nothing? Was he a blank? If he had no knowledge of good and evil, was he a blank? Or did he know something greater still? Now, what philosophy, or some philosophies will say, is that man knew truth itself. And the state of the child 
intimates this. Not proof of, but intimates it. Children are not good. If they were good, they would say, Mummy is tired and I won't cry tonight. <laughs> right? They wouldn't puke all over your new suit. They wouldn't say, I hate that food. They wouldn't do any of these things. They wouldn't pull the legs off spiders. But they have no knowledge of good and evil. So, for a child to pull a leg off a spider is not an evil act. If you do it, you have to have hardened your heart to do it. But for a child, it's just seeing how a three-legged spider moves. <laughs> you know? And then a two-legged one, and then a one-legged one. <laughs> it's just curiosity. Now, virtue is outstanding. There is no true philosophy which does not promote virtue as an expression of truth. But you need to know truth itself, which comes before all knowledge of good and evil, comes before virtue and vice. You see, if we fall into this trap, and this is a whole new subject, and it's terrible for me to, in a way, open it up at the very end of a talk, but if you fall into this trap, you will then come to the conclusion that God is good. There is actually no proof that God is good at all. You only have to look at this creation and there seems to be an almighty mess. There is no proof that God is good. If you do come to the conclusion that God is good, then you have to come up with a character who is responsible for all the bad. You have to give him an independent will, which seems to limit the supremacy of God, because you've got this maniac running around the creation who is not under the authority of God. So perhaps God's not good. Nor is he bad. Perhaps he's transcendent. Beyond all of that. Perhaps we are. Perhaps our very self is beyond all that knowledge of good and bad. Perhaps only a part of us has ever left the Garden of Eden. There's another part of us that never leaves. Philosophy and religion is just to bring the body, mind and heart back to that Garden of Eden where your true self resides which never leaves actually can't leave it that's the possibility so in total bewilderment I leave you <laughs>